What does it mean to be Nepali and grow up in Saitama, a prefecture in Japan? In this episode, Acha shares his stories of living in Saitama as one of the only non-Japanese children and his reflections on the intersection of race and socioeconomic factors in specific Asian contexts. His story is about the concept of outsider in different countries and how it harms people on a daily basis. I'm Fumi, this is Hashigar Racism, and this is the story of Acha. Acha is Nepali. When he was just a child, his parents moved to a city in Saitama, a prefecture in the greater Tokyo area. Acha recalls his memories when he first moved there. The interesting thing is, like, Japan is kind of filled with tourists. Uh, I just looked at the news today from Japan, and they're, like, so excited about the tourist inflow. And, you know, you see tourists everywhere in Tokyo. But it wasn't like that in the mid-90s when we moved to Japan. Because at the train station, you would hardly see any English. So usually we used to look at the ad boards to understand, okay, our station is coming next. So you look outside the window and see, okay, this building is there. So that means we need to get off at the next train station. That's sort of like this trick my mom used. My dad knew a little bit, so he had a better method, but that was my mom's method. And when we first moved to Japan, like we went to the small city in Saitama called Misato, where my dad went there as a PhD student and a lot of international students used to house up there. So we went to a very un-Japanese-like district in Saitama, which is next to Tokyo. I say un-Japanese because you go to the city, it's filled with Japanese people, but in the pockets, you'll see like all these international students that are studying there. And it's not a university town because the university was like at least 45 minutes away on a train. So the locals don't know what all these foreigners are doing in that city. And there is absolutely no interaction between these international students and the locals. So usually that's very different in like campus town because the locals know why the foreigners are there. They're the international students and there are usually some kind of interactions happening between them. But in our case, it's like that. It's like almost oil and water, right? Like it's a separate group living in the same area. But then I was sort of like this uh, first exception because not a lot of the international students brought their kids along. My parents were like a rare case. They didn't want to live their children behind in Nepal or their home country. So my parents took myself and my sister when we were very young. So when we got there, I sort of became like one of the first students to go to the Japanese elementary school. So from there, we started having interaction with the local Japanese. Acha said that as a child, he had to navigate the advantages and challenges of living in two worlds simultaneously the Japanese world, and the Nepali world. There were two worlds to me in that town because one is this group of international students. So every evening I I used to go out with my mom to like some Nepali family's house or Indian family's house. So we had our own world, right? Like every weekend we'd have some kind of get-together. We'd go to like a sightseeing trip somewhere. So that was one world where we're a lot more comfortable because we spoke the language, we knew the culture. And typically... um, I didn't know a lot of Japanese customs. Uh, I didn't know, I mean, the language was an issue. But then like during the weekdays, I had to go to school. 
and it was like completely new world to me. And I recall, like you know, Japanese public school at that time was considered one of the best in the world. Right? Unfortunately, now it's no longer the case. But like at that time, Japanese public school were you know kind of renowned around the world. And I can see that because I went to like a preschool in Nepal, and I would compare. With what I had in Nepal, and like you get all these things for free, like it was crazy. A school lunch for free, and you know I'm a Hindu, so like my family's a Hindu, and we don't eat beef. But then, like you know, in the Japanese school lunch, it's like it's clearly written in the menu what's up for lunch, and you know it's they write the ingredients as well, but it's in Japanese, so none of my family members or myself. Understand that there's beef in it, and I kept eating. So during elementary, I'm like eating beef all the time, and it was completely okay with me. And the lunch was delicious. And then like you hardly do anything in school. Like in Nepal, like even from the preschool days, like you study, right? Like you go to classroom, you open the textbook, you study. For me, like during the first grade or the second grade, there were a lot more playing around and doing nothing pretty much than studying. So There was hardly any homework as well, so you know, for me it was like yay. But then when I go back home, the other world kicks in because my mom is there with all these textbooks from Nepal. So while there is a Japanese curriculum going on in school, when I go back home, there's a Nepali curriculum kicking in. So I had to study Nepali, I had to study English, I had to study you know math from a Nepali curriculum. So. I could hardly go out. I would come back home and like maybe go out, play with my friends for an hour, and like after an hour, I had to return. So in that way, you know, I was still in two different worlds while living in Japan. Acha says that for the first few years of his life in Saitama, his friends treated him like one of them. But that all changed after third grade due to a TV show that aired in Japan. Until third grade, it was like pretty much fun for me. I didn't face any. It was very natural. Like I, I naturally like blended in to the group. But then after third grade, and I still hate this show on NHK. And this is funny, right? Like I used to visit Nepal during summer break, so I knew what was going around in Nepal as well. And they had this show on NHK, which is like the BBC of Japan, and they had this show about Nepal. And at that time, Nepal was going through a civil war, so I thought they were gonna like show about the civil war that was going on, but no, they decided to pick up the poorest area of Nepal and made a show out of it. Yeah, it exists in Nepal, but it's literally the poorest part of Nepal, and they made the entire show about that part only. They briefly showed Kathmandu when they landed into the city, and then they straight went into that. Now. It makes a good content for the TV shows, I'm sure. But for me, it was like my friends started understanding. Okay, Acha's hometown is like this, right? So Acha's family lives like this in Nepal. And when you're in first grade or second grade, you don't really understand that. But after third grade, you start understanding that, right? Like you start seeing that difference. Okay, he's maybe a little different. Oh, that's not how we live. Oh, is that how Acha lives? Those questions start popping up in their mind, and I still hate that show to this day for not showing the entire Nepal. Right, like you could have shown like the 
beautiful part of Nepal. But no, they decide to go to this particular area. And I'm not saying it's wrong because those parts do exist. I'm not saying we should like hide it. But for a third grade kid, it was not a good representation of his background to a classmate who probably have not even stepped out of the Kanto area, like the part of Japan. Like, so after that, like, you know, the few students started like making some comments about my skin tone. They started making some comments about like how I'm a foreigner. So there's this, you know, in Japan, there's the famous word gaijin, right? So for me, it was like, I didn't feel anything about it, gaijin, because like I knew I was a gaijin. But it started going beyond gaijin, right? So it started becoming like, oh, you're chairo, right? And chairo is brown. And now there's people who pay a lot of money to get this chairo, right? But at that time, you know, they started associating me with like this cartoon character called Kare Panman from Ampanman, this cartoon. And they, you know, like, so a lot of these remarks were made after third grade and especially in the fourth grade. So there was this time like when uh, a lot of these students uh, started making comments and I snapped out and like I started having fights with a few of them. And thank God I was like pretty good at fighting. So like I could take on the school bully. So that kind of helped me in a way because they're like, okay, don't mess around with that guy, Jane, right? So they wouldn't come to me and like start beating up me up in group. So that didn't happen. But those small remarks from time to time, you know, like, oh, Gaijin, Chairo, like all sorts of names. And, you know, even while I'm making a presentation in class, they would make some snarky remarks. And the worst, I think, was this concept of shikato. It's like, I think it only exists in the Japanese uh, society because I never really found this concept elsewhere, but like just ignoring people, right? They really perfected the art of ignoring a particular person they don't like. And they do that in a group. And everybody understands that person is to be ignored. So that was kind of like, you know, putting a toll on me. But I think the good thing that came out of it was like, okay, for me, I had to kind of face that every day. I had to go to that school. I couldn't be like, oh, mom, dad, like put me in a different school because it's like public school. It's like government has appointed that like that's the school that you need to go to so i couldn't run away from it and also for my parents it was like they didn't know what was going on because of the language barrier as well right because my parents couldn't be actively involved in what was going on with me in school like they wouldn't understand what goes around in the japanese school so it was also like completely foreign to them So they couldn't really do a lot for me in that particular scenario in that school because they also couldn't understand, like they they didn't like this feeling of not understanding what their kids are going through, right? So, but at the same time, like I started playing soccer with my friends and sports really connected me with this group of friends. And there used to be like inter-school competitions. And then like, you know, I started being an integral part of the team and this bullying and this ignoring went away. I think, like, after fifth grade, I never really faced that bully in Japanese school. So fifth grade, sixth grade, I was, like, completely fine. I was, like, one of them. Looking back, Acha reflects on why and how the kids bullied him at school. For them, you know, like, they're fourth graders, so they're, like, 10 years old. 
for 10 years, they haven't probably stepped out of that main island in Japan. Like, I'm pretty sure at that time, like, majority of my classmates have not even been to Kyushu or Hokkaido, the two other islands in Japan, right? So they really haven't uh, interacted with any foreigners. So for them, the moment when they start recognizing differences with a particular person, they try to alienate themselves from it. And I think making these remarks is like sort of their method of keeping that distance. And they want to show it to others that they're keeping their distance from that particular individual. So I think like even the students that I was friends with, like when they're one-on-one, they would never, you know, make such comments. Because, you know, sometimes we would, would be grouped together in a project and we'll be like, you know, going to the library or like to even a city hall to get some like material like for schoolwork. And then, like, you know, during that time when I'm one-on-one with this particular Japanese individual, they would never make that comment. But when they're part of the group, they make that. So that was very common. And I don't blame them. Like, you know, we do that even in other cultures. It's not just a Japanese. Like, we're just using my example while I was growing up in Japan. But, like, even in Nepal, that exists. And I saw that while studying there in college. And I think it's quite common, right? Like... As an individual, you'd never make that comment. But when you're in group, you want to show to others that, okay, I'm not associated with this guy, right? So. Acha would continue his studies in Japan, then move to different countries, primarily within Asia, to pursue his tertiary education and work. He says that wherever he went, he would see a similar form of discrimination which revolves around the concept of foreigner, quote, unquote. Acha first reflects on the term in Japanese, namely, gaijin. So, gaijin comes from the word gaikokujin. In Japanese or Chinese, like, every characters have meaning. So, gai is written as a Chinese character for outside. And koku is nation, country, like, that's a character for country. So, outside, country, and jin means people. So, it literally means outside country people, right? There's no deeper meaning than that, but it's, it just means gaikokujin. And then, like, over the years, they just, like, shortened it and they made it gaijin. Initially, it was just a shortened, abbreviated form of gaikokujin. But then in the connotation started becoming more derogative over the years because you started, like, having a lot of these uh, hate against, like, foreigners in Japan, like, you know, so that's why we kind of take gaijin as a rather negative word. So I think uh, that's what really gaijin means. And over the years, wherever, you know, even in the pop culture, whenever they're making, you know, like a, a derogative remarks against a foreigner, they use this word. That's why, you know, we try not to use this. And I, I kind of like uh, experienced that when I was in elementary school. So I hated that word. But then I started again to kind of, I blended in. And I kind of started to embrace it. I had no other choice but to be a gaikokujin or gaijin in Japan. There was no way for me to be a Japanese living in Japan. There was no way. Like even to this day, like if I speak fluent Japanese, when I wake up in the morning, I read English news and the Japanese news. So like, you know, but I cannot go to Japan and claim I'm a Japanese. It's never going to happen. It's always going to be a gaikokujin. Even if I get the Japanese passport, I'm going to be a gaikokujin. Right. So that is uh, the society that I have accepted. And, you know, like I, I decided to embrace it. So 
for me, even if somebody calls me a gaijin now, I'm kind of immune to it. But obviously, there are a lot more foreigners in Japan that are moving it into Japan or working in Japan. When they first hear it, like they would absolutely hate it. Just the, the word itself mentions that you're an outsider. You're never going to be an insider. And that's sort of like the society I felt Japan was. And it's obviously changing now, but at that time, it was either you're an insider or an outsider. At work, you're an outsider or an insider, right? Like you'd have like this、uh, gathering at work, you'd have a gathering in school, like where you may not get invited just because you're a foreigner, because they'll be like, oh, he doesn't speak Japanese. So, you know, let's not call him. So, you know, those, those things exist. Acha says that in Nepali, there are two words for the term foreigner. He shares their definitions and their connotations. Foreigner means, like、uh, in Nepali, it's bideshi. B means, I actually don't know what B means, but B means, I think, outside or like not. And desi is like basically countrymen. So that's how they form that word for foreigner in Nepali. That's the official word. But they also say kuire, which is a white people, right?、So、they have a specific word for white people. And it's a good thing. It's not a derogative word because Nepali economy is built upon tourism from the past. Like it was the end of the hippie trail. And like everyone were like, oh, are the kuire coming this year, right? Like because they were like the cash cow, right? They would. <laughs> And believe it or not, like you still see like this Mercedes Benz bus with the entrance from the back in some parts of Nepal.、Uh, not so much in Kathmandu nowadays, but like in some parts of Nepal. And those buses were used to be like, you know, driven by hippies from Europe all the way from Germany. And they would come to Nepal, they would sell it off, and then like they would just smoke the entire year in Nepal. That's sort of like how the hippie trail existed back in the days. And to this day, like when you say, Gaijin in Nepal or like foreigner in Nepal, immediately people will think, like, okay, Kuije, right? That's sort of like mental association exists. When you say, oh, our,、uh, I work in the hospitality industry, so like we have interviewed a lot of you know, hospitality folks back in Nepal, and they would be like, yeah, like, you know, we get a lot of foreigners. And they're like, you know,、uh, we have like foreigners coming in from Norway, we have foreigners coming in from like, you know, US, Switzerland. They would never mention like Thailand, Indonesia, where you know, they cost you like a lot of bulk of the tourist arrival in Nepal, but they never mention that. They would never mention from India.、Uh, India has like a separate classification in Nepal, but like, you know, they would never mention like, you know, the Chinese that are coming in, right? So, like, it's usually whenever they say foreigner, the first three examples they give are, oh, yeah, we have people coming in from like UK, Switzerland. So, that sort of mentality is still there in Nepal, and I think it will continue to be there for you know, for the future. Acha says that when looking at discrimination within Nepal in particular, there's another socioeconomic concept we must also take into consideration the caste system. I think it's an interesting concept because it used to come out of like your occupation, right? Based on all your occupation, and like people needed to be part of the group before because, you know, like. If you lived alone, like you would possibly die, right? So you needed to be part of this group of people to survive, whether it was to gain access to food or like for marriage or, you know, any reason. Like we need to be part of a group. So that's where this caste system sort of originated because 
they wanted to, again, it's an insider outsider. You didn't want to marry an outsider because you didn't know what their customs were. And like, you didn't want your daughter to suffer by giving them away to this group that you have no idea of, right? So like, that's sort of like where this arranged marriage, like the reason why people look for their own caste when marrying, these concepts start emerging. But now it's interesting because like, you know, we live in a globalized world, right? So I always ask my parents, like, Let's say you, I'm a, uh, I belong to a certain caste in Nepal and like, let's say I'm already married, but like, let's say my parents were looking for a bride for me and they wanted to arrange my marriage. They would probably look for a same girl from the same caste in Nepal, right? That's like the usual practice. Now, does that mean we're very compatible? Like does, cause does that mean really mean we're from the same group? Because I'm from a particular caste just because of birth. But my upbringing, I ate beef, right? I ate beef when I was in elementary. I think that's already frowned upon big time in my cast. And I drink. I love alcohol. And it really does not reflect my cast at all. And I grew up like completely detached from the Nepali, uh, you know, this caste system while growing up. So I have no idea. Like, what do you expect me to do? Like, I, I don't know anything, right? Now, would I be the right choice for this girl in Nepal that's looking for a groom from a particular cast like mine, right? So it's such a misalignment, right? Like, and the funniest thing is, like, to this day, no matter your... Have you watched this show, The Indian Matchmaking on Netflix? Isn't that funny? Like, you know... There are Indian families that are successful, second generation, successful people in New York or like, you know, parts of U.S. But when it comes to marriage, they want like, oh, this is a boy from this particular cast. Like, and it's like they have zero compatibility, right? Like the guy is completely like not living the life of that cast. Then why would he want a girl from that particular cast, right? It's, I would say it's a missignaling. And in Nepal... I felt that it's now being used to kind of like this caste system still exists because that's one thing the people in position of strength or like privilege, they can hold on to it and they can always be like, okay, I'm from this particular caste. So like, you know, we're better than you. It's, it's a complete ego play because you could be from a higher caste, but you could still be poor and you could be really rich, but still be from a lower caste. And you would see that in Nepal. But the poor people from a higher caste would always be like, oh, you know, so-and-so is richer than me, but I'm from a higher caste. It's a complete ego play. There is absolutely zero value in being poor and, you know, from a higher caste. Like, that higher caste is not going to pay your bills, right? And we live in a society where it's kind of materialistic and it does require you money <laughs> and these people are still getting stuck with this concept of belonging to a higher caste. So like I'm better off than others. So that still exists in our society, not just in Nepal and India as well. And that Indian matchmaking is the absolute representation of what's going on. And that's a problem, right? People are more educated. They've seen the world, but, oh, you need to marry a Brahmin girl, right? Or you need to marry a girl from this caste. That doesn't go away. And that hasn't gone away. Against this background, 
Acha shares an anecdote that underscores how the experiences associated with one's background can shape our reactions in certain situations. I was on a flight from Kathmandu to Sharjah, which is like the city next to Dubai, uh, last week. And in this flight, uh, this is like the first time I saw this, but on this flight, the cabin crew was a male African. So in that flight, is filled with people from Nepal. And for many of them, like, you know, they probably have never interacted with an African person before, right? Like many of these people on flight. So for me, I was like, oh, there is this... African male on that flight as a cabin crew, for me, like it was an interesting thing at that point because usually like a lot of Middle Eastern airlines, they try to, they hire people from all over the world. And usually in the Nepal route, you find a lot more Nepali nationalities because they speak the language. And a lot of like Nepali who travel to Middle East, they may not speak English. That's why they try to put more, you know, Nepali crews in that particular flight. But let's say if I were to fly from Nepal to, let's say, Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, right? Like, and I'm flying an Ethiopian airline, that side would not have, like, surprised me. Or, like, I would have been like, oh, okay, right? Like, but this time it was, like, the Middle Eastern carrier. And like, I saw this uh, gentleman who's who from Africa. And, like, you know, that was a new sight. So I noticed that. But did I feel anything? Like, you know, did I stare at him the entire time, like, during that flight? No. Like, did I normally talk to him yes like you know did i do anything out of the ordinary with him no like you know for me it's like just a, oh this is the first time i saw somebody on this flight who is from africa like who is a cabin crew in this flight because i fly that route a lot and it was the first time so that difference i felt but like during the entire flight i look at people like they're like staring at him like and it's not because they come from a position of privilege, but it's probably because it's the first time they're seeing someone from Africa or, you know, some, they, they might have seen people from Africa, but they have never met in person or they have never interacted with them, right? So it was the first time. So they recognize it. But when you try to make a conscious decision to be a dick to that person, then yes, you are a racist. Based on racism he experienced himself and seeing others experiencing it, Acha shares what racism is for him. I think it's the insider-outsider is the basic fundamental thing that drives racism. And when you're making decisions based on that insider-outsider and you're conscious of it, I think that's racism. If you're HR staff and you are throwing away CV of a certain individual just because that person went to a university somewhere or like that person's background is from a certain country, then like, you know, you're kind of being racist because you're generalizing based on that inside or outsider concept. But also you could be racist to your own people, right? That's the thing. And that is very, I think, prevalent in Asian societies because you kind of like put people from certain backgrounds higher than your own people. And that is kind of visible in many Asian societies, and that's also racism. So I think just making that conscious decision of neglecting certain people or favoring certain people just because of their race is racism for me. And it might be very broad, but that's why it's very difficult to get rid of racism around the world. And as long as that differences exist between people, I think... Let's say there is absolutely zero difference from our perspective. Like, let's say everyone looks the same, same skin tone, same everything. I think there will be a different way, different type of racism then. Because by that time, it'll be like, okay, you have a certain shape of eyebrow. 
right? Or like certain, like we we always want to like you know find because we want to be better than others, or you know, like we want to be different than others. There is that innate need in us to be kind of like better than others and feel better, superior to others, and uh, until and unless that exists, you know, racism exists. So. You could be a white person who is living in Asia, not noticing all these. You might say, "Oh, people are so nice to me," but then there is a racism impact because racism is working in your favor, right? They'd be like, "Oh,、uh, there are people in Nepal are so nice. People in Thailand are so nice. They're you know they don't really treat me different. They welcome me." All these travel vloggers <laughs> they always write that, and yeah, it is true. But then you know what? If I go there, I'm not getting the same treatment usually. So that's racism, right? So racism could work in your favor or it could work against you. So you know, it's it's always going to exist. And for me, that's what it means. Acha has the following to say on what he thinks it means to be anti-racist. I think it's、uh, to accept that there are differences, and just I think it's, it it really means just don't be a dick. I think <laughs> there is no there is no mantra that is going to solve it. Just don't be an asshole to others, right? Like I think. You know, whenever you find someone to be racist, they are consciously making that decision to be an asshole. I don't think anyone would like that in their heart. Like, if I'm making a racist, like sometimes it happens, right? Like, I see somebody, and then like immediately I'm like inside, like I'm feeling okay, this is different, or I'm making certain decisions consciously, and then you know, like I know I'm being racist in that particular scenario. I don't feel good inside, and. It happens for any average person, right? Like, unless even if you're an extremist, I, I don't know. If you're an extremist, let's kind of like you know weed them out. But if you're a decent human being who knows what's right or wrong in the modern education system, like you know you came from a modern education system and kind of connected digitally, there are certain actions you take which is considered racist. Then at that moment in your heart. If you ask yourself, you don't feel that good. So if you're trying to be racist, you're consciously making that asshole decision to be racist. Yeah, there is no other way. It really has to be from an individual level. Like you need to recognize the difference first. You need to try to understand that difference, right? Just understanding the difference doesn't really help. You need to try to understand what background they come from. More you do that, the better. But then, like, just don't be an asshole. Like when making a decision, when you throw away your CV or when you try to neglect certain people, you are making that conscious decision, right? When you are not inviting a certain team member because of that, right? You are making that conscious decision not to invite someone because they're different, right? So, and if you feel good about it, like you know, if you don't feel that inch of like tingling. Sensation, like because you're making that dick move, and there's no way to like make that person better or like you know least less racist. There is no solution to that. You can find more information on the concepts of gaijin in Japan and bideshi in Nepal, as well as other articles, books, and videos. Acha recommends people to take a look at on racism on our website. www.ourcontext.org. 
You can also find the transcript of this episode on our websites in English, French, German, and Italian. If you have a personal story to share, reach out to us on our website, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us by typing in hashtag our underscore racism. This is Fumi and hashtag our racism. See you next year on January 4th. This episode was produced and edited by me, Fumi. Music by Pete Morse, Crescent Music, and Fugu Vibes. This podcast is powered by the Competence Center for Diversity and Inclusion at the University of Sangalan. A big thank you to Acha for his time and energy in going down memory lane for us and sharing with us thought-provoking and honest reflections on this issue. 